From Odyssey, I'm Lauren Berry, and this is the On Deadline podcast, where we take a deeper dive into stories from our radio newsrooms across the country. Today at On Deadline, we're looking at the rise in anti-Semitism across the U.S. and at college campuses in particular. When the terrorist group Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel on October 7th, kicking off a war, the reverberations were felt around the globe and in ways you may not expect. Case in point, there has been a huge spike in anti-Semitism here in the United States. From October 7th to December 7th, the Anti-Defamation League says there have been 2,031 reports of anti-Semitic incidents nationwide. To put that into perspective, last year during the same time frame, there were just 465 reports of anti-Semitic incidents. Since the fighting began, there have been almost 34 anti-Semitic incidents per day. That's an increase of 337%. The Anti-Defamation League called the increase unprecedented and said the reports encompass physical assault, vandalism, and verbal or written harassment. Here are some of the incidents in detail. Last Thursday, a Jewish father of five was beaten right in front of his own home in Brooklyn by an attacker spewing anti-Semitic rhetoric. That was just two days before another man was robbed of his $2,500 traditional Jewish headpiece in the same borough. A 75-year-old father walking to an Orthodox synagogue in Beverly Hills was attacked this week by a man wielding a belt and screaming vitriol. The connection between the increase in attacks like these and the ongoing war in Israel is indisputable. According to the Anti-Defamation League, more than 1,400 of these anti-Semitic reports could be clearly linked to the Israel-Hamas war. Jeff Abrams is the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League Los Angeles, and he joined Odyssey to share more on the increase of anti-Semitic incidents. Do you think that local, state, federal political leaders are cognizant of how dangerous this is and are doing enough? Well, they're certainly aware of it. And, and to say that they're doing enough, I, unfortunately, there's never enough right now. But I can assure all of your listeners that our state, our local, our, our council members, they are deeply engaged in, in our mayor to try to help make the Jewish community safer. And that also goes for law enforcement. Just this past Friday in my office here at ADL, we convened a gathering of law enforcement leaders, Chief Moore from LAPD, U.S. Attorney Martina Estrada, and leaders from every law enforcement agency in Southern California, along with Jewish community leaders, so that we could make sure that our concerns are being heard and that we continue to kind of have the kind of partnerships which are essential right now at a time when, as we saw this weekend in Beverly Hills, the Jewish community is truly under attack. Okay, so they're clearly aware of what the problem is. What exactly is being done? Well, it's a combination of intelligence gathering, so knowing what's happening in our city, in our county, and sharing that information. And we, too, at ADL, along with our partners in the Jewish community, particularly the Jewish Federation, we also share our intelligence. When we know that there's going to be an activity in a particular location, it enables law enforcement, as happened this past weekend. And while it was not free from graffiti and vandalism and some amount of violence in protest when President Biden was here this weekend, law enforcement, LAPD, was there ahead of time so that what was bad did not become worse. Is there any evidence, Jeff, that there's any organization behind these uh, recent uh, anti-Semitic attacks or even insults or graffiti, or does it seem to be isolated cases? 
Well, there are some aspects of it that are certainly organized. There are certain organizers that you will see at one location from one university to the next or from one protest to the next. And unfortunately, what a lot of uh, the, the, the violence, a lot of the risk here is outside agitators coming into our community as community members, really both pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian are exercising their First Amendment rights. But there are those few who come to agitate, to inflame. And this is why we are in the position we are, where there's real risk to our community. And do we know where these outside agitators are coming from? It's something that, that both ADL and our partners, as, long as, law enfor- as well as law enforcement, we're, we're continuing our efforts to, to track and identify and make every effort to do what is legally possible to prevent these from becoming the violent outbursts that we're seeing. The increase in anti-Semitic incidents hasn't been isolated to one area. College campuses scattered across the country have seen a staggering number of reports from students. The issue has gotten so bad that three elite university presidents testified before Congress last week. However, the testimony from University President Liz McGill, Harvard President Claudine Gay, and MIT President Sally Kornbluth left politicians, donors, and students upset. During the congressional hearing before the House Education Committee, Representative Elise Stefanik, a Republican representing New York, asked all three if, quote, calling for the genocide of Jews violated the three schools' code of conduct on bullying and harassment. The president's balked at the question. I asked a very specific question. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate their school's bullying and harassment policies? Not a single university president could say yes, Stefanik said afterward to ABC News senior White House correspondent Selena Wang. In the days since, a bipartisan letter signed by 74 members of Congress has demanded that universities take action and fire the presidents, though only McGill had resigned by the time of our recording. To discuss more on the threat of anti-Semitism on college campuses, KCBS political analyst Mark Sandalow joined Odyssey in the Bay Area. Hey Mark, what was the original purpose of these hearings? The original purpose was to find out what presidents were doing to stop a rise in anti-Semitism on college campuses. I mean, this has been a tragic situation, obviously, for you know thousands of Israelis, for thousands of Palestinians, and it inflames emotions in the states and at MIT, Harvard, and Penn, um, which were the people who were testifying, the presidents of each of those institutions, there have been anti-Israel rallies, and the purpose of the hearing was to figure out what's going on in those campuses and what the universities are doing to stop it. And, you know, it begins almost innocently enough where you know, the, the president of Harvard is getting questioned by uh, Elise Stefanik of New York. We're five hours into the hearing at this point, and she asks if she knows the meaning of the word Infatada. And infatada is an Arabic word, which literally means to shake off, um, like, you know, getting something off your back. But it's been used by Palestinians as a word to talk about the resistance to the Israelis. Some people have gone so far as to use infatada as a word to suggest genocide of the Jewish people. So she pushed her on this. Do you know what infatada means? And on and on and on. And it got to the point where finally she said, 
uh, to the president of Harvard. Do you believe that somebody calling for the genocide of the Jewish people to be a violation of Harvard's code of conduct? Now, that's a pretty easy question to answer. I would think that the call of genocide for anybody would be a violation of any college's code of conduct. And in the academic world, she, after being pushed into this, took a very uh, legal approach and said it depends on the context, which led Stefanik to ask the president of MIT and Harvard uh, of Penn the same thing. And again, it depends on the context. The notion that there is a context in which calling for the genocide of an entire race is acceptable is, of course, abhorrent to people. And so now there is this outrageous uproar on both sides. Uh, these three college presidents, uh, two of them have already issued clarifications, even one of them a specific apology. One hasn't spoken up yet. This could well cost them their jobs. This is among the most emotional issues on college campuses I've ever seen. And these colleges rely a lot on donors and uh, the establishment of, uh, you know, things like that from donors. So this could Absolutely. Hurt no, it does. And, and Eric, I mean, th this is where stereotypes get into big problems. There is no question that each of these universities have extremely wealthy Jewish donors who have threatened to pull back, and some people think, ah, yeah, you know, Jews and money, which is, of course, a horrible stereotype because it is also these same universities, Harvard in particular, that instituted legacies back in the early, you know, 100 years ago, legacy admits. Why did they do that? They did that to keep Jews out of their universities. They did that because Jews were beginning to take up so many spots in their admission classes based on their performance that they said, well, how can we keep this many Jews out? Well, do you... So, so these universities also have a legacy of anti-Semitism uh, themselves. And, you know, we, we evolve as a country and um, I mean, it, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. And you think about, uh, and it's a tough example, you know, what, what if what if you're an immigrant from Mexico and a family member is, is shot dead by an ICE employee and there's a massacre on the border and you take to a microphone up on Sproul Plaza in Berkeley and say death to Americans out of anger that your family was just shot. Should you be expelled from the university for saying that? And I think most people say no in the context of the emotion of the moment. And that's what I think the president's meant by the context. But boy, this is as big a moment as when the tobacco industry said 25, 30 years ago that nicotine was not addictive on television in Congress. And it led to an outrage because clearly they didn't understand that, you know, saying something so awkward, in that case a lie, would be a problem. This is causing an enormous problem for these presidents. Those responses from the university presidents spark backlash from both Republicans and Democrats. Even second gentleman Doug Emhoff offered his thoughts at the lighting of the National Menorah for Hanukkah last Thursday. He said it was unacceptable that they were unable to denounce calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. While the Anti-Defamation League has called certain speech damaging and anti-Semitic, some have argued that it is a constitutionally protected right. Offering more on what's protected and what isn't, David Keating, the president at the Institute for Free Speech, joined Odyssey. To hear one side tell it, uh, the presidents of the universities in question, it's a complex issue. To hear the uh, New York congresswoman put it, it's not that complex. It's pretty straightforward. What do you think? Uh, it's definitely not that. It's not straightforward like she's making it out to be. Not at all. 
Why not? Look, the the universities are private universities, so they can obviously come up with ever whatever kind of code they want for conduct for students and faculty. But most of them, at least on paper, have uh, policies that mirror the First Amendment. And as such, they guaranteed students and faculty free expression rights. And under our Constitution, you're allowed to say really obnoxious, hateful things. And it's allowed. What's not allowed is when at universities under our civil rights acts, you're not allowed to make the speech create uh, an environment for students where they can't take or enjoy the benefit of learning at the institution. But isn't wasn't that the point of the congresswoman? No, no, no. Why, it wasn't. why not? Because she was just saying if someone just, I don't know, posted on Twitter or X, for example, that kind of speech, that that should be enough to be a violation of the policy. And that isn't enough. If you were to just stand out in the quad handing out flyers saying that, that's not enough. But let's say a group of students went to the Jewish Student Center and started banging on the door or chanting outside, you know, we're calling for genocide of Jews and elimination of Israel. That's a completely different thing that we're talking about. One is just expressing well, right. speech but, 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 to the public. Right. And and the other is yeah, but, expressing but, 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 students. But let's go back to, in a, in a way, to the very simplistic, in some ways, but maybe not so simplistic, notion that uh, free speech is not an absolute in the Constitution and you can't yell fire in a, in a crowded theater. That's the example that's always given by those who well, say... Well, you, you can yell it in a crowded theater if there's really a fire. Yes, but I, I guess if you were a Jewish student at one of these universities, you would probably argue that there really is a fire. And that fire is what seems to be a growing amount of anti-Semitism on some of these campuses, and therefore those who might be saying things like uh, genocide is, is, is acceptable or something like that, they would argue that it is tantamount to being in a theater with a real fire. I can understand how they feel. And uh, at a lot of universities, there have been students conducting themselves in ways that clearly violate the policies. At New York University, some of the reports that are coming out of that, that's one, that's another elite institution. It's not an Ivy League school, but it's in the same class. Some of the stories there are absolutely horrifying. These are not people just expressing views. These are students specifically targeting groups of students. That's clearly not allowed. That should not be tolerated. I would say all three universities have real problems with their speech codes. Look, we all know that if the speech were aimed at something other than Jewish students, they would probably be taking action. Um, for example, if, if there was speech talking about police brutality and Black Americans in mm -hmm. a way that didn't conform with the narrative on campus, mm -hmm. they probably would punish it. And I think that's why people are so upset. There's, they've seen universities take stands on all kinds of controversial issues. Mm -hmm. And here we have an unbelievable attack by Hamas on Israeli citizens right. and spread of anti-Semitism, and they don't seem to do anything. And so that's people are looking and saying they're hypocrites. And yes, they're definitely hypocrites. Right. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Following the testimony on Capitol Hill, the university presidents were quick to offer more on their responses to Stefanik's question. President Gay put it plainly, telling students, I'm sorry, words matter. 
She told the Crimson, that's the student newspaper at Harvard, that she got caught up in an extended combative exchange about policies and procedures. Former President McGill offered an explanation, but no apology. She said that she wasn't focused on, but that she should have been, the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is, quote, a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. She said, it's evil, plain and simple, in a video posted to the UPenn social media accounts before her resignation. Last month, FBI Director Chris Wray also acknowledged what he called a historic rise in anti-Semitism here in the U.S. He told Congress that it isn't a time for panic, but that it is a time for vigilance. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Berry, and I want to say thanks for listening to On Deadline, Odyssey serving of a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed.